I'm Jake Thompson, and this is the Better Than Yesterday podcast. What's up, guys? We are back with another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. I'm excited you're here. My name's Jake. I am the Chief Encouragement Officer at Compete Every Day and your host of the weekly show. This week, I am joined with Alicia Jessup. Alicia and I have known each other for years thanks to the power of Twitter and social media, and I have been a fan of her work since day one. Uh, She's an incredible lawyer, professor, and blogger that has built a really powerful career in the sports industry. She writes for Sports Illustrated, she's written for Forbes, Huffington Post, all giving a very unique perspective in the world of sports and on athletes. So I think you're gonna enjoy today's episode. It's one of the longer episodes, but we dive into how she started this successful blog, what her mission work in Haiti looks like, what inspired her, and who this NFL wide receiver running this organization has done uh, down in Haiti, as well as just talking about how to start. What gives you, who gives you permission to pursue your dreams, to get started on the things that ache at your soul, the things you feel that you're born to do, and how to kick that off. So I know you're gonna enjoy this week's episode. Let me dive in. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. I am joined with Alicia Jessup of the University of Miami, ruling sports and a number of other awesome, awesome ventures. How are you today? I'm great, Jake. How are you? Awesome. So first, before we dive in, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, a little bit of your background so they have an idea other than what I've listed out in the show notes. Full-time professor at the University of Miami, where I teach sports law. And I think since the age of seven, I knew that I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't think I really understood what that entailed, but every person I saw as being successful was an attorney. So I went to law school. I graduated from law school in 2009, which was at the height of the economic recession. I remember I was an intern at the Screen Actors Guild in Hollywood in 2008 and I went to work that day and I took my lunch break at the Grove in Los Angeles for your listeners um, who are from that area and I came back from work and I had a secretary at the time and she was always just kind of emotional and I turned the corner to go to my desk and she was crying and I said what's wrong Marcy and she said Alicia the world just changed and I said okay you know like what happened you know is your husband okay is your daughter she goes no um, the stock market crashed, and we are preparing for one of the worst economic periods in my and your life, and everything's going to change. And I, I didn't know what happened at the time. I was a law school student up to my head in debt, and so I went over to my computer, kind of excited to get away from her because she was so dramatic, and I pulled up, uh, I think, CNN.com, and I started reading about what had happened, and I knew that it was going to impact me and hundreds of thousands and millions of other Americans. And so I graduated from law school, I think about five or six months later, and the economy was really, really, really rough. Um, A lot of law firms were just not, not hiring. They were laying off really, really established and reputable attorneys from their firms. And so 
I knew that my career was going to be different than what I had mapped out in my head and that I was essentially going to have to become an expert on my own right and to pave my own path. And I recognized pretty quickly that I was going to have to be an entrepreneur and I had no entrepreneurial training or skills. So um, that, that was really the first thing that happened in my career that led me to where I am today. But in 2011, I was practicing law. I, I was one of the lucky ones. I was able to find employment after I passed the bar exam. A lot of my friends were unemployed for upwards of 24 months after law school. Um, but I, I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. I was practicing litigation for a mid-sized law firm that represented Fortune 500 companies. And I was just dead on the inside when I shouldn't have been because I was living in Orange County, California on the Pacific Coast Highway in Corona Del Mar, blocks from the beach. I had great friends. I had a fun, exciting life, but there was a void in me. And I knew that that void was my biggest passion in life was sports. And that's why I went to law school was to work in the entertainment and sport industry. So I decided to start a blog and I honestly didn't think anybody would read it. The blog is called rulingsports.com and luck kind of happened. I, I think you probably know this, Jake, but oftentimes success is built from hard work, preparation, and luck and a mixture of those three things. So I started the blog on July 1st, 2011. That same day, the NBA decided to lock out its players. I had no idea that this was going to happen. I didn't have an inside line to David Stern, who is the commissioner, or Billy Hunter, who is the head of the NBPA. But suddenly I was covering sports in a way that other people weren't because I was looking at the legal aspects of the industry. And that opened up so many doors. I wrote for Forbes for three years. I've covered Super Bowls, NBA All-Star Games, the Final Four. I've been flown to Germany to cover Bundesliga matches. Um, I have a nice sport bucket list going. Today I write for sportsillustrated.com on a vertical called The Cauldron, which is kind of a neat new type of way of covering sports, more the human interest stories of athletes and leagues. And then I'm a full-time professor at the University of Miami. And I also have a small business where I represent sport-based clients in their communication and marketing and branding efforts. So you no, not busy at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's um, you know, the thing that I like about what I do is no day is the same. And I, I think you could probably say the same thing as an entrepreneur, but I'm a Gemini. And so if there's any Geminis listening, we tend to get bored easy. We have what my dad calls rabbit feet where we hop from one thing to the next and I think this blend of things is enough to keep me interested and engaged and to keep pushing towards one common goal which is being um, a main player in the sport industry but through a few different channels. I love that. So before we dive into that big goal I want to go back a little bit on when you started, especially when you started ruling sports. And I, and I say that because we were talking before we got on here about some of our mutual contacts and friends and Kelly Masters I had on my personal podcast a couple years ago. And I, I loved Kelly's story because there's not a lot of female agents in the NFL space, much less the larger sports representation space. And I, ta- I wanted to talk to her about some of the struggles and obstacles she's overcome, but also how she approaches it because she has an uphill battle compared to 
others in a male-dominated industry. And so for your take, starting out writing for sports, there's a lot of male journalists and a lot of chauvinistic ones to a degree because the the four main sports, NBA, NFL, NHL, MLB, are male sports. And so they would have to take on the assumption that a a woman cannot do their job as well when all actuality, we know that's a line of crap. Like you've incredibly been, you've been, excuse me, incredibly successful writing. And it's not because you're a woman, it's because you're an incredible writer and reporter. Who gave you the, I guess, courage or I would almost say permission to step into that space um, and know that you can write and succeed, especially when you had the timing of the NBA lockout? Yeah, so um, the, the, there's two things I want to touch upon. I definitely want to answer that question. The, the people who gave me the courage or the permission are definitely my parents. I'm an only child, and I, I was telling um, someone the other day that I just feel so lucky for the parents that I have because for as long as I can remember, I've been told I can do anything. And it's kind of a joke in my family because I've literally done so many different things where I'll wake up in the morning and I'll say, you know, that sounds fun. I I think I'm going to do that. And so an example of that is when I was a kid, I did dance. And then I I think a lot of times you become a teenager and you get involved in different things or interested in different friendship groups. And so you kind of let some of your passions slide. So I gave up dance in my early teens. I didn't dance in high school. I wasn't a cheerleader in high school, but I went to college and I said, I I think I want to be a cheerleader. And (laughs) I told my parents that I was going to try out for the cheerleading squad. And I think they both had this look of horror of, oh God, (laughs) we're going to have to console our daughter because she's about to get embarrassed and her heart broken trying out for an intercollegiate cheerleading team. But in my mind, um, the only way I know failure is failure is not trying. If I didn't try, I would have never known what could have happened. But if I tried, I at least could have peace with it. So for me, failing would not be not making the team. Failing would be not even giving myself a chance to make the team. And luckily, I did make the team. And, you know, it's it's a constant joke with my dad, especially, that I'm not afraid of anything. And I, I think the basis for that is two things. One, I had really, really supportive parents who from day one told me, you can do whatever it is that you want to do. We believe in you. Um, But I I also have a deep Christian faith. And if I'm a true Christian and I read the Bible and I study the Bible, I'm told not to fear. And if I believe that what I'm doing is good and worthy, I know it's going to succeed. And that's the mindset I had when I started ruling sports. I knew that nobody in the sport industry was going to give me a chance because I didn't have experience. And so I had to create the opportunity on my own. I knew that I was good enough. I knew that I had knowledge and understanding of the industry and the law and that I was a good writer. So I said, Alicia, what, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is you're only going to get four hours of sleep <laughs> per night for the first year that you're doing this. But you're going to put yourself out there and you'll see what happens. And in a year, if it doesn't work out, you can say you did it and you can move on to the next project. So it, it was a really exciting time. You know, some, sometimes I miss those days. And I, I wonder if you feel the same way, too, where the struggle is real and you just believe in this idea and this vision that you have for your life so deeply that you're unwilling to take no 
for an answer and you're just going to keep pushing down door after door after door and finding the ones who are open and the people who are supportive of you to get to where you need to go. I love that. No, I, I think you're spot on and, and that will obviously lead to this 2017 goal that we talked about. But I think as long as you're continuing to raise that bar and, and where your focus lies, you can always have a piece of that. It's not like the first day and first year when you start and it's like, oh my gosh, I've got to make this work. Uh, but it, it's definitely still there. And so that on that note, so you were writing for how long? So you started the blog. It obviously wasn't overnight, just exploded. Uh, and so most people, when they start a new venture, when they start writing, they start a new path. If it doesn't hit in the first week, first month, they think they're a failure and they give up. How long were you really writing before you started to gain some major traction? Or did it just because of the NBA lockout, you started having a lot of traffic run through your site because of that legal perspective? Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting answer. And like where I want to begin answering that question is about timing. And so I knew that I wanted to start the blog when I was in law school. Um, If anybody Googles me, you can see that I've been blogging since I was 12. I started this really silly Colorado Avalanche website when I was 12 years old, and it's really funny to look at now 20 years later. But um, I, I wanted to do the blog, but for some reason, I just didn't. And over that time, I kept reading other people's blogs. And the one thing that I've become very good at is learning from others, learning from their successes, seeing where they went wrong. I'm a good observer. And I I think if you want to be a business person, you have to observe the market and understand how it works. So I, I started the blog on July 1st of 2011, but that's not really when it began because I had a plan in my head. And I knew in order for it to be successful, I was going to have to find some bigger fish in the market who were willing to share my content. And I think that was the riskier part than sitting down and blogging, going out blindly when I have nothing to offer these people. You know, I'm I'm an attorney at a mid-sized firm in a practice area that's irrelevant to them. And saying, hey, here's a blog I wrote. Do you want to read it and share it? (laughs) So I, I think that was the most unnerving or scary thing, was just reaching out to strangers. But to answer your question as to when it took off, again, it goes back to what I said. Success oftentimes is hard work, preparation, and luck. Um, Or if you're a Christian like me, you believe that when you find what it is that you're supposed to find, there's no way for you to fail. And the blog honestly took off overnight. So I started it on July 1st. July 2nd, I was going to a wedding, and I was in my friend's car, and I you know, I was checking my email like we do, and I had an offer to tape my first radio show. So the blog had been up for 24 days, and I'm taping a radio show. I signed with a broadcasting agent who reached out to me. I'll, I'll never forget this email. It said, hi, Alicia. Um, I'm a broadcasting agent based in Atlanta. One of my clients is Doc Rivers. I represent Kevin McHale, a bunch of other coaches, and you know, pretty serious broadcasters. Do you have an agent? Do you want one? Um, yeah, yeah, I want an agent. <laughs> no, I don't have one. I'm like some kid in Orange County that just started a free blog. You know, I didn't have a web designer or a graphic artist. I did everything on my own. So. 
That was, I believe, in May 2012, so it was about a 10-month turnaround. Um, In June 2012, I got another email from an editor at Forbes that said, Hi, Alicia, do you want to write for Forbes? And I wrote back, yeah, sounds good. (laughs) So it, it just all started unfolding. But the biggest takeaway for me in everything that's happened to me in the last five years now, because it, it did happen really fast, is, is what I was supposed to do. And what people don't see is the years that came before the last five years where I had a struggle and I had a lot of other failures, if you will, or I was involved in things that I shouldn't have been. So um, in, in terms of people starting a blog, it may not take off overnight, but if you're passionate about it and if you believe in your content, if you think there's value in the story that you're telling, you have to do it for yourself because at the end of the day, that's what I was doing. And when you do things for unselfish reasons, it tends to resonate a lot better with other people. And I have to comment on that because most people, when they think about, oh my gosh, I've got to get a blog up, I've got to get a million other things going. If you go to either your personal website or Ruling Sports, it's a very clean, simple blog. There, mm-hmm. There's no flash. It's not over the top. The content is great. And so for anyone out there wanting to write, like I can't stress enough, it, the values in the content because if the content is great, you don't need the, the site to be incredibly fancy because the content speaks for itself. Yeah, um, no, that, that's so true. And it, you know, it goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. Before I got started in all of this, I watched a lot of other people who were doing it. And I said, okay, I like what that person's doing. I would do X, Y, Z different. And it's funny because a lot of times people say, Alicia, who do you read? Like, who are you following on Twitter or Instagram? And it's kind of embarrassing because I'm single and I don't have children, but I read a lot of mom blogs (laughs) because someday I hope to be a mom. And there's this woman in Florida named Kelly Hampton, and she was a photographer and she had a child, you know, she had a healthy baby girl. And then her second child was born and unexpectedly the young girl was born with Down syndrome. And so it rocked her world. But when I was reading, you know, I had followed her before the second daughter was born. And, but she was just so raw in the story that she told and the images she shared. And her content was just so, so, so amazing to get to your point. Her blog was literally plain white with a photo that she snapped in the header with her name over it. it. It was the most boring blog layout you could probably see, but the content on that site was amazing. And over time, she would become a New York Times best-selling author. So things don't have to be perfect. I think the key thing that anyone does is if you have a passion for something, you have to go start it because nobody's going to come to your door, knock down the door and say, hey, Alicia, would you like to become a sports writer even though you've never written anything in your life? That's not how the world works. So you you just have to start somewhere. I, I read a really interesting article yesterday about Kendra Scott, the jewelry designer who's based in Texas. And she just sold off some shares of her company And the company is now valued at $1 billion. And Kendra got her start as a mother. So she had just become a mother. She had a baby. She's trying to balance life and, you know, make some extra income for her family. 
She spent $500 to start her business, and her initial pieces of jewelry were made with a baby on her hip or close to her side. So, you know, things don't start perfect. They start messily. I started my blog in an apartment I was sharing with two other girls, and I was up until 4 o'clock in the morning trying to get my really impressive logo (laughs) made perfectly. It looked awful. Uh, before I had to get in the shower at 6 a.m. to go to work. So nothing's pretty, but the key thing is that you just go for it and give yourself a chance. Awesome. So I want to switch gears briefly because it's incredibly apparent that you are living your passion and, and that you have found your purpose in that. But one of the things that we've connected and talked about numerous times is your work away from sports and with a nonprofit that does a lot of work in Haiti. And so if you could briefly share how what that organization is and really how you got plugged into it, because I am absolutely in love with everything I've seen coming out of this organization. And, and like I shared, like I want to go down in one of these coming years and be able to participate. Yeah, so it's, you know, it, it all boils down to timing. I've always had a big heart for the less fortunate that was instilled in me at a very young age. And again, going back to my blog, in 2010, when the earthquake happened in Haiti, I actually did a fundraiser for the Red Cross at the time through my blog, and we raised thousands of dollars through that. And Haiti has always been a place that's been on my heart. But honestly, before 2014, if you handed me a globe and said, Alicia, find Haiti, I don't think I would have been able to. So um, in, in 2014, I was going through a lot in my personal life. I had my heart broken in a way that I just didn't even know was possible. And it, it was a really, really, really dark and ugly time. And I was still writing. And um, when you're a writer, especially if you write for major publications, you get what are called press releases in your emails with different companies or people pitching you a story, trying to get coverage for whatever they're doing. And so at the time, I was writing for Forbes, so I was getting hundreds of these a day from all over the world. And you basically just look at the subject line, and if the subject line catches your interest, you actually start reading the email. If it doesn't, it goes in the trash. And so in July 2014, like at the... (laughs) the start of my roller coaster of a year, I get an email about an NFL player holding an event to raise money for his nonprofit in New York. I live in Miami. And so this immediately went into my trash because I knew I couldn't go to an event in New York. And I honestly was kind of frustrated that the publicist didn't do their job and research that I lived in Miami. So I go through my day, and at the end of the day, I get into bed, and I, I'm really bad. I don't suggest people do this. I always check my email one last time. I'm trying to stop that habit. <laughs> oh, um, it's a like, terrible habit. I have the same terrible, one. It's a terrible habit. Um, actually, what I've done in the last six months is I've taken all electronics outside of my room, and it's a much more peaceful zen place. But in 2014, the phone was next to my bed, and... Um, I I was like, something in me was like, you need to go back and pull out that email. And during every summer, I choose a book in the Bible that I want to study. And that summer, I was studying the book of Jeremiah. And it 
was one of the hardest books that I had ever been through because it's just like so destructive and you're like, oh my gosh, like this is not some positive, happy thing. It's just a really, really hard book to read because there's so much destruction and pain and agony and heartbreak, but there is a verse in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 11, where it says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future, plans to prosper you. And so I, I pull the email out and I start reading about it and I learn about a Jets player named David Nelson, who at the time I had never heard of before. And he had just started an orphanage in Haiti and now I'm captivated. And so I write the publicist back and I say, thank you so much for the invitation to the event in New York. I live in Miami. <laughs> I can't make it, but I would love to do a story with David. And so we set up an interview and so many athletes do great things in the world. They give back. And I feel like at this point, I've heard every story of what an athlete does to give back, right? There's like the camps, there's the scholarships. I'm buying 30 people Christmas presents. I'm delivering turkeys. And that's all super worthwhile. But David got on the phone with me and it was different because it was real and it was so far beyond not just what any athlete I had encountered was doing, but any human being I had encountered was doing. So David got involved in Haiti in 2012 when he went there for the first time. And he's a wide receiver, so he's tall, he's muscular, he's strapping. And they were doing some aid work. The country was still pretty devastated from the hurricane in 2000, or excuse me, the earthquake in 2010. And he's walking through a city and he sees a little boy stuck on a piece of rebar. So he goes to get the boy off of the rebar. And through a translator, they speak Creole in Haiti. Through a translator, he starts asking the boy, can I give you food? The boy says, no. Water? No. Candy? No. Toys? No. At this point, this NFL player is feeling pretty annoyed and almost defeated and says to the interpreter, ask him what he wants. And so the kid says something to the interpreter, and the interpreter said, he says, just hold me. And what you have in that moment is, I think David's 6'3 or 6'4, this 6'3 man literally breaking down and realizing that what the world needs, and especially the underprivileged, is they don't need our things. They need our love. They need our care. And so at that point, he was invested in Haiti. And over time, he and his brothers would form a nonprofit called I and Me. In 2014, during the off-season, he and his brothers were at a house that they rented in Port-au-Prince to get the organization off of the ground. And they were called by a doctor that they had met in the city. And he said, hey, I want you guys to come with me to a place. And I, I've since been to this place. It's a, quote, orphanage. I would not call it an orphanage. I would call it hell on earth. You pull up and there's a dirt... Um, dirt parking lot, I guess is how I'd explain it, surrounded by cement buildings, and there's just trash everywhere, and people wandering, and, you know, maybe a rogue chicken here or there, and then you go into this building, and you walk downstairs, and there's no light, there's very few windows, the floor is covered in dirt, and there's a couple of benches, and I, I didn't know where we were going initially, but you go in there, 
and you turn the corner and it's dark and it smells like smoke because people are burning their trash and you see the eyes of these little children who are just sitting on benches and they just look void of life. It, it's, it's literally hell on earth. So in 2014, the doctor took him there and he showed him some kids who were on the brink of death. And if you go on iMeOrg's um, Instagram, you can see pictures of some of the kids in 2014. And they're literally skin and bones. You know, they, they were going to perish if they weren't taken. And David and his brother literally just took nine of them out of that hell and committed to raising them in our children's home for I, Me Now. We now have 12 children in our care. And the mission of the organization is to end the orphan cycle in Haiti. There, or actually worldwide, but we're focused mostly in Haiti. And there's 600,000 orphans in Haiti. Um, Haiti is the size of a small United States, so that there's 600,000 children there without parents. And it's not because their parents are dead. They are what is called poverty orphans. The average Haitian survives on less than $2 a day. The birth rate in Haiti is an average of five children per family. So I have $2 to take care of seven people under my care. And, you know, I, I don't claim to be the greatest at math, but that becomes very, very difficult. So um, I, I did the story on David. And during his bye week in 2014, I went to Haiti for the first time. But I think the most beautiful thing about it is at the end of our interview, I asked him, I said, besides the story, what can I do for you? And he had just gotten the kids, I think, a week earlier. And so they had very little financing. They had very little resources. And so they opened up sponsorships for the children. And he said, well, if you're interested, we have a page for sponsors and go and look and see if you want to sponsor any of the kids. And I said, I'll do that. So I go on the webpage and like, it's, it's babies, right? I'm a woman. They're all cute. I want to sponsor them <laughs> all, but I, I couldn't pick which one. And then I scrolled to the end of the page and I, I started crying because the kid at the end was named Prosper and his face just jumped out on me and you know, it, it went back to the Bible verse I had studied that entire summer about how God has plans to prosper you. And I, I can't even explain the heartache I was facing. That That's a story for another podcast um, that summer. And I had a dream the night before I met David. And in the dream, it said, there is a boy. So as a newly single woman, I'm like, cool, new boyfriend. This, this is great. Like, this, things are moving fast. That's awesome. Uh, but it was a seven-year-old Haitian boy named Prosper. And, um, you know, he, he saved me from myself. And I will stand by that kid for the rest of my life and support this organization and hopefully be able to reunify him with his parents by ensuring that they have stable income and jobs that they can meaningfully provide for him with. I love that. And and David's group goes down there, what, once a year, a couple times a year, and takes groups. I think, I don't even remember what they call them, but it was like, it wasn't like, hey, you're going to do mission work. It was like a retreat, or a, and I'm blanking on what the name of it is. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the organization has a permanent presence in Haiti. We have a house for the children, and so they have Haitian caretakers. We've given Haitian people jobs that 
allow them to take care of their families. So we're preventing the orphan crisis in that way, since some of the caretakers do have children and have been able to keep their children since they have this job. Um, and then we have a guest house. And one thing that happens with the guest house is there are a number of what we call vision trips that happen throughout the year. Um, you know, we I would they they have a lot of them. Basically, if you want to go to Haiti, go to the IME.org website, <laughs> email them, and we will figure something out. Because we the one thing we know is we need all hands on deck to support these people. And the reason why we call it a vision trip is if you go there, you see the beauty of the country and the beauty of the people. I, I've never felt as home as I do in Haiti. You know, one thing I struggled with in my 20s is just no, nowhere felt like home, not even Denver where I grew up from zero to 22. I got restless in California and Haiti is one place that actually feels like home. I have a mini family there, but there's such great beauty in the country, but it's interlaced with just some of the greatest despair and poverty that you will likely ever encounter. Haiti's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and I have seen things there that I would have never been able to imagine before I went there, but in the same day, you can literally drive a few feet more down the road and just be filled with such great hope for what the nation is capable of if people care and give their time to helping its people overcome their circumstances. And so we call it vision trips because we want people to see the possibility of Haiti if we empower its citizens and people and treat them the way that we should. You know, if you're a Christian, as Christian brothers and sisters and uplift them and care for them. I love that. I love that. And, and like I said, I'm a huge fan of what David and them have built and just their whole approach, their storytelling, even online to tell more of their story and what they're doing is very powerful. Okay. I'm going to switch gears with you because I have to ask you, you piqued my interest earlier with school and ruling sports and your own personal blog and coach to communications. Like how in the world do you balance everything? Yeah, it's, you know, some days it gets really hard and there have been times where you get kind of burned out. But I think the best thing that's happened over the last five years is I'm in a place where I can balance this. When I started, I didn't think I could tell anybody no. I took every story that came to me. I turned down social opportunities with my friends. I turned down dates just to work, 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 work. And in the last two years especially, um, I've learned how to say no and how to prioritize and how to balance my schedule. I, I get eight hours of sleep every single night, <laughs> uh, at least. Some days, I think last night I might have got nine or ten. Um, how, now, how do you do that as a, a fan of all things Colorado, knowing that they play two hours behind you? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely tough being on the East Coast. I generally pass out on my couch by halftime of a Broncos game and then wake up and go to bed. So <laughs> that that's like the one big con of living in Miami as a West Coast girl. But, um, you know, I, I think it starts there. You, you have to prioritize things. If my family or friends call me, I don't care what I'm doing. I'm picking up the phone. I mean, unless I'm teaching. But 
they get first priority, you know, second behind my faith and, you know, being involved in the church. Um, then behind those two things, I know that I need eight hours of sleep a night to do what I need to do during the day. And I need to work out at least an hour to an hour and 45 minutes a day. So I honestly build my life around those four things. And then what I can fit in in the meantime is what gets done on that day. And I have great peace that some days it's just not going to get done. And the world is not going to end if I don't publish a blog. Um, I, I'm planning a big conference at the University of Miami. I launched it last year. It's called the University of Miami Sport Industry Conference. We bring in top experts in the sport industry to discuss the cutting edge issues that it's facing. And, you know, we have people this year coming in like Greg Norman to Shane Battier. And I have a great committee of professionals who help me. And one of my dear friends, Rich, I'll, I'll name him so he knows I'm not talking behind his back. <laughs> but, you know, Rich works for the Miami Heat. He's an assistant to the coaches. And he just, he pushes me. You know, he's like, Alicia, why didn't you do that yesterday? And I'm like, you know, it's okay. <laughs> I, I know and I, it, it drives him nuts. I know it drives him nuts. Um, he's one of my very dear friends. But you can see when I tell him, Rich, it's going to get done. It's going to be fine. It's not like I'm just sitting here twiddling my thumbs. But I, I think what I would tell people is I live and die by my planner. So I put everything in my phone, but I also have a hard planner. And that really helps me because I can visualize my week in landscape fashion so I can see what I'm doing Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all across two pages. And I tell myself on Sunday, okay, these are the things that have to get done this week. Where are you going to fit them in? And I fit them in. And then you, you learn how to prioritize and there's some things that can wait until next week. And so... It kind of goes against what one of my favorite people in the sport industry, Coach John Wooden, uh, one thing that John Wooden said in his career is don't go to bed without doing something that you could have got done today. That's that's Alicia Jessup paraphrasing. That's not exactly <laughs> the quote, but that's, you know, don't go to bed without doing something that you could have done today. But I don't think he meant finish five blogs, you know, answer every single email. I think what that statement meant is if there's something so pressing, like making something right with a person or telling someone you love them or you're sorry or you forgive them, you don't go to bed without doing those things. It is okay to go to bed without hitting send on the email or publishing the extra blog. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that to you – Failure would be not trying. And so I won't use the word failure in this question, but I will ask, what is the largest obstacle or adversity that you're proud you've overcome? Yeah, so, you know, I I really think my career is something that I'm proud of because it's something that I had to fight for. You know, my, my friends who know me and who have grown up with me know that nothing was handed to me. Um, I am a self-made person. And I think that there are a lot of times where I could have given up and taken the safe road, where I could have had a very nice job in a very safe office and, you know, had a much more normal nine-to-five schedule than I do now. And 
could have lived happily ever after, but um, and th there was a period of time, especially after the economic recession, where I thought that's what I would have to settle for. And it, it, it was bad um, because I, I went down that road and I was unhappy. And there was a period of time where I didn't know how to get off of that road. And I, I was miserable. <laughs> I was just not a happy person. And so I think one of the biggest obstacles um, that I faced was just being true to myself, maintaining my belief that I could push through a great economic recession. And, you know, what people have to understand is I paid for law school on my own. And so I came out of law school with, I think, $105,000 worth of debt. Um, my, my parents do all right, but they don't have money to write off $105,000 worth of debt for me. And so I started life with a student loan bill of 1600 bucks a month. So you, you have to get a job that pays well, but at the same time, you have to listen to your intuition and say, okay, money is everything. I need to fight through this and figure out how I can pay my bills and do what I love. Um, and so I, I think that was one of the bigger obstacles. I, I think the other thing working in the sport industry, especially as a woman, is just being true to yourself and your values and your morals because there are some amazing, amazing people in this industry, but there's also a dark side of the industry. And there are a lot of things that go on in this industry where it would be really easy to take part of them. It, it probably would help my career <laughs> if I would take part in some of them. But you, you have to draw the line somewhere and say, no, I'm not going to do that or I refuse to do that even. So I, I think as I get further into it, that is the bigger challenge these days and just staying true to myself and staying true to my morals and values and not relinquishing them. I love that. So I have to ask, what is your big goal for 2017? This podcast will air probably in January. And so I want to know between January, the end of January and December 31st, 2017, what do you have your eye on accomplishing this year? Yeah, so there's, there's three things that I will accomplish this year. So Ruling Sports was started in July 2011. I started writing for Forbes in, I believe, May 2012. And so basically from the blog's infancy until present day, I, I write for sportsillustrated.com now, I've written for other people, and when I started the blog, I had this vision of it becoming one of the main sources of sport business news, but telling sport stories and stories of athletes in a positive manner. And so the, the blog kind of has been neglected <laughs> over the last four years, and I want to revitalize it. I, I've had a couple of athletes who have said to me, Alicia, if you do this right, will invest in your blog and will give you the startup money. And so I kind of want to bet on myself again. You know, five years ago, I bet on myself just by starting the blog. It has opened so many doors for me. I became a full-time professor at the University of Miami with no teaching experience, no journal publishing experience at the age of 29. That would not have happened if it weren't for the blog. So it's time for blog 2.0, <laughs> if you will. And um, starting in January, I'm going to begin cultivating much richer content and just really ramp up the um, publications that we're pushing out. 
of the site and turn it into an actual business venture, which it's not right now and it needs to be. Uh, my second goal, so the little boy that I sponsor in Haiti, Prosper, he is a big soccer fan. His favorite player is Cristiano. I asked him why Messi is not his favorite player, and he said, matter-of-factly, because he's short and annoying. So <laughs> the, kid, the kid knows what he likes. Um, but he really likes soccer, and I've been really lucky to get to know some of the players for Miami FC, our North American Soccer League team in Miami. And so one of my goals is to get them over to Haiti to do a soccer camp. Obviously, not Prosper's not getting a private soccer camp, although he, <laughs> he would love one. that. Yeah, he he he's a character. He um in. I got him a bike the first Christmas I knew him. And the following April, one of the nannies messaged me and said, Prosper wants to FaceTime you. And I was like, oh, wow, like the kid loves me. And so I get on the phone with this kid and I start asking him about his day and his brothers and sisters and, you know, how everything's going. And you just see him getting more and more agitated. And so finally I asked him, do you have any questions for me? And he said, we, which means yes in Creole. And he said something to the interpreter, and the interpreter said, I'm not going to tell you what he said. And I said, no, tell me. And he goes, oh, I don't know if I should. And I go, tell me. And he said, he wants to know if you can come down and fix his bike. So <laughs> he's, he's, he, he knows how to get what he wants. But I, I want to go down there, and I want to do a soccer camp because there's so many children who love soccer. And, you know, some of my favorite memories from Haiti are – walking through a village and seeing a group of, I think, four or five boys playing soccer with a bunch of plastic bags that they had wound together. And they just had such joy. You know, they didn't have shoes on their feet. They didn't have a real ball. They had some plastic bags that they were kicking around. And um, we also went into a voodoo village Easter weekend 2015, and we played soccer with the kids. And Literally, I think kids were coming over the mountain when they saw us playing soccer. So I want to do that. And that ties into another goal that I've had is to create. Um, and this is something that a lot of businesses are doing. A lot of businesses are creating a for-profit side of the business and a non-profit side of the business. And so I want to create a non-profit side of ruling sports where I create a camp-based educational system. Um, and we go into underprivileged areas and not only teach them sports, but teach them leadership and life skills and problem solving. And just to let them know that there's people outside of their communities that care for them. So those are my goals for this year. I think they're both achievable on some scale. You know, we're not going to get it right <laughs> or get it all done in 2017, but you just have to start. I love that. I love that. So, okay. So this has been one of my favorite interviews. And so for anyone else that is just a sports addict, wants to find out more about you, I, me, any of this, where can they connect with you online? Sure. So I think the best place is probably Twitter. My Twitter handle is ruling, like a legal ruling, sports with an S. Um, and then from there, you can get links to I, me, my personal blog, uh, ruling sports, and then everything else that I write or do. Super. And I know you'll be posting throughout the year as each one of those goals gets started and checked off. And so everyone listening will be linking to all of her accounts in the show notes and websites so you can follow along as well. Alicia, thank you so incredibly much thank for joining. You. It was fun. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. To contact the show, email us at podcast at competeeveryday.com. To find resources and valuable content that will help you better compete for your life, be sure to visit betterthanyesterdaypodcast.com. We're excited to have you part of the community, and we're excited to see you again next episode.